Well, it's great to be with you this morning. If I look a little funny up here or grimace, it's because this morning my back decided to not cooperate. So if I look a little funny, that is why. And uh, that leads in perfectly to our opening question, given the, the small amount of pain I am suffering. Why is there suffering in our lives? Why is there suffering? Why do we face heartaches, diseases, pain, and death? Why do loved ones suffer? Why do spouses walk out on marriages? Why do children rebel and forsake the ways of their parents? Why so much pain? Another question, why is the earth itself out to kill us at times with earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, landslides, floods? Why are there things like poisonous snakes and poisonous mushrooms? Why are there cacti and rose thorns, razor sharp, that draw blood? Why are there ligands and cougars with claws and teeth to eat us? <clears throat> Surely, there is no God. Or if there is a God, he must not be good. So says your coworker, your friend at school, your relative. But no, you can reply, this proves there is a God and that he is righteous and holy. You see, God made everything good. He made everything and he made it good. But man sinned and this ruined everything. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 3. This is not our text, but it's where we'll start. I think it's beneficial to begin here. Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. And the reason the world suffers and that we suffer in it is because of sin. And the curse, the curse that sin brought. The curse that sin brought. Look in Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19, as we see the sentence God passed on mankind for Adam and Eve's first sin. Verses 14 and 15 are to the serpent. Verse 16 to the woman begins. Verse 16, to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Only time would tell just how severe this pronouncement upon man would be. Fast forward some 4,000 or 5,000 years or so to Paul's day. From the beginning of that, from the beginning of time until the Apostle Paul, one thing was constant. Everyone died. Everyone died and they suffered along the way. And then in the genealogy in Genesis 5, we see it, right? It repeats, everyone died and he died and he died. Friends, everyone dies. Everyone suffers. Everyone groans within themselves. Suffering is a major part of the human life and it can all be traced back not to the work of God, but to the work of sin. And sin, in short, is rebellion against God. And so in mankind's rebellion, the earth and everything on it is cursed. Turn now to Romans chapter 8, if you will. 
Romans chapter 8, we'll continue through this magnificent chapter. And Paul, ever the pastoral persona, wants to speak to you in your sufferings this morning. He wants to speak to you in your pain and your heartache. He wants to speak to you who have deep-seated griefs that things in your life are not how, they, how you would have wanted them to be. They aren't going right now how you planned it, maybe. He wants to speak to all of us who have ever been pain, have ever been pierced to the heart with pain too deep for words. Now, Paul knew pain. Paul knew suffering himself. Yes, he had suffered much for the sake of Christ. Many beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, whippings. But I would wager that even before Paul came to know the Savior, Paul had experienced the pain of this world. See, Paul's world was very different than ours. Right? Understandably, uh, Paul had understood what death and disease was like. Understandably, he'd seen with his own eyes the violence and brutality of his time that we only see in movies. Today, our life is, is much less painful, right? We've got smartphones, cars, uh, air conditioning, heat. Things are very different today than they were then, yet we still have many pains. And I just want to bring this up and to remind us that Paul understands pain. Paul understands suffering in every way. As a human, as a sinner, and as a Christian, Paul experienced suffering. So when he speaks today, it's both from his personal experience and guided by the Holy Spirit. Look with me in Romans 8.17, one verse before our text. We, we concluded here last time. I got to preach a month or so ago. And you'll see that suffering in verse 17 is part of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 17 reads, If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. In verse 17, Paul is clearly referring to the suffering for the sake of Christ as he comes off these incredible promises of adoption into God's family. And if we are God's family, Paul says we can expect to suffer abuse and scorn much like Jesus did. It's part of being his follower, part of leading up to our eternal glorification. And if God has called his son to suffer, which he truly did in the deepest way from uh, Gethsemane to that old rugged cross, then God will also call you to suffer. You see, suffering is not outside of God's plan for you. God does not want you to always be healthy and wealthy, contrary to some so-called Christian teachings today. God ordains that in your life, as a Christian, you will experience suffering. And he has good purposes for it, as we'll see later in this chapter. But verse 17 reminds us, and we must know that as a Christian, we will suffer. It's part of the Christian package. Now Paul also knows that suffering in this life comes from a lot more than just suffering for Christ. Right as we turn our attention to verse 18 and following, Paul moves to this broader scale of suffering. Suffering really comes in three major areas. First, suffering for the name of Christ. Just spoke of that. Second, suffering on account of sin. Right? Our own sins often result in great personal pain via the consequences. But third, suffering that occurs just because. Just because we live in a cursed world and are surrounded by other sinners. Suffering that has seemingly no point or value in it. And it's just this last one of the three that's often hardest to bear, hardest to live with, 
and hardest to grasp God's goodness while in the midst of it. A lot of suffering doesn't make sense. A lot of suffering isn't our fault. And most suffering we could just as soon live without, right? But we cannot live without suffering. And Paul knows that, and more importantly, God knows that. And so today, from our passage, we get a call, a charge, a guide from the God above who sees it all, who knows your every need and your every pain. And I believe that to the extent that you can follow this charge from God, you can live with greater trust in Him and with greater joy in Him. Friends, if you really grasp this, this can change your entire life. This outlook can make anything bearable. This outlook can bring peace back into your today and your tomorrow. This guide from God has the power to transform you to the extent that you heed it. What is it? Just four words. Anticipate the future glory. Anticipate the future glory. As a Christian, you are called to anticipate the future glory so that you may endure the present sufferings. Let us now examine the details of God's words so that we may better apply this truth to our lives. Follow along as I read the scripture, Romans 8. I'll back up to verse 14 just to pull in what we learned last time. Today we'll study 18 to 25. I'll begin in verse 14, Romans 8, 14. The word of God says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open this text. Father, your word speaks to us. It speaks great things to us, to comfort us, to guide us, to draw us to your own heart. God, may we be men and women after your own heart. Uh, work in us, Lord, through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll jump right into our first point. You see it in your note sheet there. It's that future glory far surpasses present sufferings. Verse 18, future glory far surpasses present sufferings. Now, when I was a kid, I was really into building things with toy construction sets. 
My favorite was not Legos, though I did like it, but my favorite was Connects. That's K apostrophe N-E-X, Connects. Now, Connects is made up of very colorful plastic rods of varying lengths from about one inch to as much as about 10 or 12 inches. They're quarter inches in diameter, and these rods connect into connector pieces, and you can build big stuff with them, which is why I preferred Connects over Legos. Now, when I was about nine years old, I wanted this Connects roller coaster set, and so I ordered it. This, this set was a fully functional roller coaster with a giant upside-down loop. It stood a little over three feet tall and was six feet long when fully completed. It looked so cool in the pictures. Having ordered it, I could not wait to receive it. To me, roller coasters were the coolest. Connects was the coolest. And when you put two coolest things together, you get pure awesomeness. Right? Now, the problem was the box to ship it in was quite large. So I had to wait a while for it to come. And given that I grew up here in Washington, it rained a lot, and I spent many a day in my room bored, dreaming of my Connects roller coaster of pure awesomeness. Now, I distinctly remember at one point while riding in the car, waiting for it, thinking about it, I said something out loud like, I sure hope Jesus doesn't come back until I get to build my Connects roller coaster. <laughs> Though the wait was long, it finally arrived. And I quickly built it as fast as I could, and sure enough, it was pure awesomeness. A fully functional orange and yellow roller coaster with an upside-down loop. And to top it off, I had hours upon hours of fun in the weeks to come, taking it apart and redesigning bigger and better roller coasters. You see, I had such a strong anticipation of getting this toy, an anticipation that only a kid can have. This anticipation got me through those days of waiting and those days stuck in the rain. And that eager anticipation was fulfilled as I knew it would be, pending Jesus didn't return, of course. It was fulfilled at the arrival of my Connects roller coaster set of pure awesomeness. Now, not to be trivial in making this connection, but sometimes we need a childlike faith as well as a childlike anticipation of what's to come for the Christian. We need a deep-seated, passionate, all-consuming anticipation of the future glory for all who are coming in Christ Jesus. Sorry, that is coming for all who are in Christ Jesus. Right? It is only such an anticipation that will bring us willingly and joyfully through our life sufferings. This is indeed the very thing that enabled Jesus to willingly go to the cross and die for your sins. Die for our sins. Jesus anticipated the future glory and the joy that would be his when he sat down on the Father's right hand. And it was this anticipation that enabled him to endure the cross. Hebrews 12.2 tells us exactly this, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus endured it because he knew what was coming. His anticipation of glory enabled his endurance, the text tells us. And Paul begins verse 18 with the words, For I consider. This expression is one of great assurance and no doubt. Paul has really thought this through. What he's about to share with us, he's really thought through. In fact, the Greek word, we get uh, our English word logic from the Greek word. So Paul's using his logic and his reckoning. He's thought this through. It's not a passing thought. He's really considered this truth and firmly fixed it in his mind. 
And friend, we need to do the same. Let's firmly fix this truth in our minds as well. What is the truth of this verse? It's that our future glory far surpasses our present sufferings. Far surpasses our present sufferings. This verse is so central to Paul that the rest of his argument, all the way down to verse 30, is based on the truth of this verse. Based on the truth of verse 18. Like Romans 8.1 and the promise of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, like that verse lifts us to new heights, freeing us from the fear of condemnation. So the promise in verse 18 grounds our faith in the promise of God and that living for Christ is worth it. And that promise, which we must believe in faith, is that eternal life far, far outstrips and outshines the life we live now. Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18 and what Paul tells us here. He says, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we've got coming is so great. Yes, we have sufferings in our lives today. These are real. These matter. These are not negligible things that we can pretend don't exist. They do exist. They do hurt. But in comparison to what's coming to us, Paul says, friends, there is no comparison. There is no comparison. And this is so important. So important that Paul even takes the phrase rendered are not worthy in English and he jams it in the front of his Greek sentence. In Greek writing, putting something out of place to the normal flow of language adds significance and putting it at the front adds it as well. It's like Paul italicizing and bolding this phrase. This not worthy to be compared phrase. Friends, there really is no comparison between our current sufferings and the future glory that is coming to us. It might be like taking the sufferings and the glory and putting them on a balance, on scales, right? To see which weighs more, which has more weight in our lives. And it would be the moment the glory touched the scale, it would just plummet to the ground, plummet to the platform. In fact, it might happen so fast that the sufferings just get launched off into oblivion as if they never existed. Friends in Christ, when we reach that glory, as we pass from this life to the next, all the trials and hardships and suffering of this life will be revealed to be what they truly are in the long run, inconsequential and insignificant. Now, it's not that our trials today, our sufferings, it's not that they are inconsequential or insignificant. They are not. They are real. They affect us. But when we are in heaven and the glory is everywhere, they will at that point come to us in hindsight, in our rearview mirror, as inconsequential, as insignificant. Now, what is this glory? This glory we're looking forward to? What are, we, what are we talking about? Well, this glory, as I've mentioned, it encapsulates all of verses 18 to 30. You see in verse 30 that it ends with the promise that those whom God has justified, he will also glorify. In the middle, in verse 21, speaks of the glory of the children of God, referring to our future status in eternity. It's not a glory we possess yet, but it's a promise from God that one day, one day we will possess it. 
Now, this glory is not just the revealing of something you see, like a, like a grand theatrical spectacle where the curtain is drawn back and an amazing view takes your breath away because of the magnitude or splendor. Perhaps you've driven around a corner and were dumbstruck by the grandeur of some magnificent view. That's not simply what Paul is saying. You're not just a mere spectator to this glory. No, you are a central participant in this glory. It's not just a glory revealed to you, but upon you and in you. You will be made to share in that glory. This will cause everything you experience now to pale in comparison. You yourself will be glorified. Your physical body will be glorified. No more sickness or maladies. No more pain or disease or backache. Your spiritual soul will be glorified. No more sin or moral deficiencies that mar and frustrate and bring doubt to the assurance of your salvation. No more of that. We know what we ought to be now, right? Sinless and perfect. That's what we strive for and yet we're frustrated because we're not there. We're like, we're like an aging athlete who can no longer perform like he used to when he was young. He's frustrated with himself every time that he plays. In one sense, we're frustrated like that daily. Daily. This, that constant frustration is part of the Christian experience as we continually battle sin and the, and that clings so closely. The sin that clings so closely. But in that day, no more. I will work glory in you, says the Lord. Glory will not just be shown to you, but in you. True holiness and righteousness will be yours, not just by imputation through Jesus as it is now, but in actuality. You will see the glory of God, the glory of heaven, and you will also experience that glory in you. Now friends, that is a hope you can cling to. That is a promise you can base your life upon. No matter your present struggle, even be it the greatest struggle you can imagine, a far greater glory is awaiting you. To quote Pastor Ligon Duncan, he says, your suffering now may seem beyond endurance, but your glory then is beyond compare. It's beyond compare. Now Paul Paul knows that such a grand statement like verse 18 can be hard to wrap our minds around. The Roman Christians, they were experienced in suffering, but how does one grasp the change that is to take place in us so that such a wondrous glory will be revealed? And so Paul offers in verses 19 to 22 what I call the creation illustration. That's our second point, the creation illustration in verses 19 to 22. And it's interesting how Paul's illustrations also often teach us a ton of theology in their own, right? Think of Ephesians chapter 5. That, uh, uh, talking about marriage, he then talks about, reveals the mystery of Christ in the church. And that entire discourse that gives us so much theology about Jesus Christ is an illustration that is to help us with our marriage, with our marriages. Right here, Paul gives us an illustration full of its own theology designed to help us in our anticipations of glory to set our mind on that future glory. So let's dig into this creation illustration and mine its gold. Reread it with me. I'll go through it again. Verses 19 to 22 says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly 
for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This is the creation illustration. Now, first question, what does Paul mean by creation? Let's make sure we've got to understand real quick. Uh, it's quite clearly from the context that creation is everything God has created that is subhuman. Later on in verse 23, Paul juxtaposes humans with the creation, so we know that we're not included when Paul talks about creation here in this passage. It's everything below human level. Animals, plants, dirt, tectonic plates, all those kinds of things. Now, verse 19 begins with this creation anxiously longing and eagerly waiting for Christ's return, at which point the sons of God will be revealed, says the verse. And I think Paul uses sons of God's here, this phrase, in, to keep, in keeping with his teachings that we looked at in verses 14 to 17. It is at the return of Jesus that God's true children will be revealed to the world. God knows them already, but currently we look a lot like every other human being, right? But not then. When Christ comes, we'll be glorified and we will stand out like a swan among crows. There will be no mistaking who God's children are. And the creation longs for this day. It longs for it. One commentator put it, the creation is on tiptoes, craning its neck. The creation cannot wait for the, coming, for the coming glory to have its effect on it too. You see in verse 20, the, create, the verse 20 says, the creation was subjected to futility, to vanity. As we read in Genesis 3, it was man's sin that caused the earth to be cursed. It was not the earth's fault. It did not want to be cursed, but verse 20 tells us that God subjected it to futility. Now, quick side note, the word God is lacking, so son of quib, that Adam or Satan are the ones guilty of, of subjecting the earth, but that's, that's not possible. Neither of them have that much power, plus Genesis 3.17 specifically states that God said, cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. God's the one in control here. But it's all man's fault. And since creation was created for, the, for man to take care of, creation here gets the short end of the stick. It's cursed. And that's the way the world is today. That is why there are thorns, thistles, poisonous things, sharp teeth on lions, tsunamis, earthquakes, fires, hurricanes, you name it. But you see, God knew what he was doing. That's what verse 21 tells us. He did this in the knowledge that one day he would restore it setting it free from the bondage of decay that it currently experiences. The, verse 20 closes with the two words, in hope. In hope of what? In hope that the creation would one day experience the same freedom of glory that the children of God will experience. God knew what he was doing. Creation will one day experience the surplus of our glory. Just as it was cursed in one moment for one sin, it will be blessed in one moment, for Jesus' one act of righteousness. Now what does this all mean? What does this all mean? Heaven will come down to earth. The glory of God will shine everywhere when he comes to dwell with man in New Jerusalem. The plants will grow and flourish like never before. The wolf and the lion will rest with the lamb. Your children, who are in nursery right now, they'll play with the cobra and be unharmed. 
in light of this, the Spirit in Psalm 96, 11 to 13, commands the earth. The Spirit commands the earth. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. Why rejoice, O earth? Because the Lord is coming. And when he does, it means restoration for the full earth. Isaiah 35, 1-2 speaks of the gladness of the earth and the transformations that will occur. Listen to this. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad and the desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shouts of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. When the glory of Jesus is revealed, not only will we rejoice, but so will the earth. The wilderness and desert, those waste areas, they'll be fertile, beautiful. Just just imagine, imagine the Sahara Desert rippling with beautiful crocuses and other flowers and plants. It would also yield abundant crops to those who might farm it. This illustration of creation teaches us what we cannot see about ourselves. You see, we can picture, we can picture a beautiful creation. We can picture a glowing sunset over the ocean, a majestic mountain covered in snow, a beautiful orange and red forest in the middle of autumn, or a lively waterfall crashing down, casting off a vibrant rainbow mist. We can picture some of its glory in our minds. But what we cannot really picture is our own future glory. Right? And so this creation illustration, we learn great truths about God's plan for the earth's restoration. But more importantly, Paul's point is that we know for certain that this glorification will be ours as well, and even more so. We can, to a degree, see creation's future glory in our mind's eye, though we cannot grasp our own. So we must proceed in faith, anticipating the joy and grandeur and beauty of our own transformation that God, by His Spirit, will work in us in that day. Friends, creation cannot wait for the coming of Jesus. And if this be so of the earth, how can we not anticipate it even more? If the creation, which was not created in God's image, can anticipate God's glory, how can we, the image bearers of God, not anticipate it and long for it with every fiber of our being? The creation groans in its current state, verse 22 says. The whole creation currently suffers greatly, but there's a beautiful end in sight, a new birth. Friends, we suffer greatly, but there is a beautiful end in sight. If the creation longs for it, how much more should we? How much more should we anticipate and eagerly wait for the future glory? And that is exactly where Paul takes us now in our third point which is a charge to you and me. It's a charge to anticipate and endure. Verses 23 to 25. Paul switches gears into verse 23, coming out of his discourse on creation's groaning, and he makes a direct comparison to our own groaning. We groan within ourselves, waiting for that final day of Jesus' return. 
though we have wonderful privileges right now in this life of being in Christ, we have so many great promises and so many tangible blessings and joys now, we still have many pains. And we yearn for these sufferings to cease. We know that on that day, we will receive the redemption of our bodies. End of verse 23 says, which speaks of our bodies being redeemed from the grave, raised to eternal resurrection life. Our souls have already been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but not yet our bodies, which still carry with them the effects of the sinful nature. And for this redemption, we are waiting eagerly. This is the exact same verb used in verse 19 to describe the creation. Paul will use it again in verse 25 of us. And it's this this idea of, of waiting both patiently and eagerly. Patiently and eagerly. The main thrust is that it's an anticipatory patience. Something we are looking forward to and want to come soon, but we'll wait as long as we have to for it to arrive and we won't give up. That's how we are to await for the redemption of our bodies. And as the verse also says, for our adoption as sons. Now, this verse seems to say that we're not yet adopted, doesn't it? If you look at it, it's like, wait, we're waiting eagerly for adoption of sons. Well, didn't we learn in verses 14 to 16 that we're already adopted by God? That we're already children in his family? So how does this work? Well, picture adopting a child from a foreign country, be it Nigeria, China, Moldova. In many cases, the adopting parents will visit that country and the, the orphan and they'll meet the child they're adopting. But because of legal constraints, paperwork processing, and the like, the parent must return home for a time without the child. So it's fairly typical. Now this child, having briefly met her new parents, knows she is being adopted and that she has new parents. What a joy that is to her. She has met them. Maybe she's able to communicate with them from afar. Perhaps she receives a gift or two from them. And yet while she is officially and legally adopted now, she is not able to be with her parents Yet, the adoption, though real, is not fully experienced and actualized yet. She's still waiting for their return to get her and take her home. And our adoption into God's family is much the same. We met God personally at salvation, and he was likely more real to us then than ever. We now communicate with him long distance through prayer and through reading his word, the Bible, his letters to us. We are truly adopted now, legally signed and done by the blood of Christ, but we're waiting for God to come pick us up, as it were, and bring us home to his presence. Then the adoption process will be complete when we rejoice in our heavenly Father's home. 1 John 3.2 tells us this oh so clearly. 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not appeared as yet what we will be. John reminds us that now we are children of God. So friends, we are already adopted, but the full experience of that adoption is not yet complete. And so in the meantime, as we wait, the Father has kindly given us a gift. Elsewhere referred to in Scripture as a down payment. He has given to us the Holy Spirit. Verse 23 also tells us that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Remember, as verse 14 says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All Christians receive the Spirit, not just the lucky ones, all Christians. Every blood-bought follower of Jesus has received the Spirit. And it is an incredible gift. 
The Spirit guides us, directs us, leads us to sanctification, helps us in our weaknesses, and He even prays for us when we don't know how to pray or what to pray for. Verse 26 tells us that. And this Spirit, He is referred to as the first fruits. The first fruits. What is that? Well, the first fruits term harkens back to the Jewish custom of bringing the first of the harvest to the temple and offering it to God. This consecrated the whole harvest, and it carries with it the thought that there will be later fruits, right? What's the point of using the word first otherwise? And so the Holy Spirit that we've received is just the first of many, many incredible blessings that we'll receive in glory. An adopting parent of a foreign child might give the child a gift like a teddy bear when first meeting her so that she might have a token of their love and a means by which to reassure her of their return. In the same way, God at the beginning of his relationship with us gave us the Holy Spirit. This first gift only bespeaks of the bountiful and numerous gifts that await us in our eternal home. The Spirit is the first fruits, but there will be many seconds and thirds and fourths and hundred million billionths fruits to come. So believer, this is our hope. This is our longing. This enables endurance in us as we consider and anticipate what's to come. Do you believe it? Can your mind's eye grasp it? Restored bodies, full of glory, surrounded by glory, overwhelmed with gifts and blessings from the Father, and best of all, in the glorious presence of the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. This will all happen in an instant. 1 Corinthians 15, we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Oh, how we hope for and long for and eagerly await that wonderful day. That wonderful day. Our last verse says, but if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Paul concludes by talking about this perseverance and this anticipation. The word hope, I want, don't want, I want to get into it, but I don't have the time. The word hope can often be better understood to mean anticipation. Anticipation, something that we're eagerly longing for and know we're going to get. Paul's saying we anticipate it, and yet with perseverance, we wait for it eagerly. We wait for it eagerly. What is perseverance? It's endurance. It's persevering to the end. It's not letting the sins and sufferings and setbacks and sadnesses of life keep us from walking with Christ. No, we must endure. And we must endure while eagerly waiting, anticipating that future glory. Our bodies will be restored, will be perfect and holy. Our perfect Savior will be before our eyes. The creation will be restored. Friend, are you anticipating this day with every fiber of your being? Are you willing to commit to endure with Christ until this day comes, no matter the trials and the testings you face? Anticipation and endurance, they go hand in hand. And today Paul is telling us that a deep anticipation of our future glory is what enables endurance in our present sufferings. Like I said at the beginning, we are called to anticipate the future glory so that you may endure the present sufferings. Now, as many of you know, you probably all know, Billy Graham passed away less than two weeks ago, on February 21st. The greatest evangelist of the 20th century, perhaps the most influential Christian since Martin Luther and John Calvin. Most of his life was spent burning bright for God, doing amazing things for God's glory. But the last decade, the last 11 years of his life, were spent alone. 
bereaved of his wife, of his wife Ruth. His family would visit him regularly, but for the last 10 years or so, he sat in a chair for the most part, silent, alone. I cannot think of much suffering worse than loneliness and uselessness, day after day, month after month, year after year. How did Billy Graham stay true and faithful to his God? Was solace found in reflecting on all the great successes of his ministry? Was it found in the personal stories of conversions he'd witnessed firsthand? Was it found in the army of servants who had picked up his mantle and continued the good work? No. Comfort for Billy Graham was not found in those things. According to his son, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham was able to endure and persevere through this lonely decade because of anticipation. Anticipation of the glory that was almost his. For Billy Graham, that glory is no longer future, but present. He has been glorified and is with his Father on high, but for us it remains an active anticipation. Friends in Christ, every suffering, every struggle, every trial you could possibly face, it can be endured by anticipating the future glory. On that last day, when your trumpet sounds, your faith will be turned to sight, your anticipation will become reality, and your Savior will be yours, saying to you in love, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Friends, let us anticipate that day. Let's pray. God, we lift you high. Such great glory you have, Lord. We are humbled that you would share some of it with your servants, God. We are wretched, sinful. God, we mourn over that fact. We're frustrated by it. God, help us to put off sin in this life, to live for you and to anticipate what's coming. God, for any of those in this room who do not know you yet, Lord, none of this is true of them. I pray that this truth, this message, your word would convict them of sin, God, and turn their hearts to you. Save souls even this morning, God. Press this word upon our hearts and minds. May it go with us today. In Jesus' most holy and precious name, amen.